Hello and welcome to Town by Nine, where nine people have up to ten minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the Town by Nine podcast. Podrick O'Toole and I started Town by Nine September 2011 in the Black Box in Belfast and I'm sure you're sick of hearing about it, but we love it. And there'll be more in our beginnings later in the podcast, but first we got together in our home venue on Wednesday, April 27th when the theme was Friend, and we had a fantastic collection of stories, and I've got three of them for you today. I'll pick and steal lavender from a field, and the lady will shout at me as I make my getaway. The lavender still hangs in my study. Let's just go out for the day and have a bit of a pub crawl, like we used to back when we were friends. I laughed. I assume that was supposed to come out a wee bit less cutting and devastating. And for someone who works with language like he does, I did think he could have been a lot clearer. I just asked. And he did. Okay then, let's get on with the first of our stories. Anna Grindle had been at the 10 by 9 mic once before in January 2020. So we were delighted to welcome her back with this story. Just in case you're wondering, Anna mentions a superser. A superser was a gas heater that was common in the 70s and 80s and could suffocate in seconds with its gas fumes. Enjoy. Often on a Friday, I visit a cafe that overlooks Belfast Lock. My Americano is a moment in which to straddle from the working week over to the weekend. There are usually a couple of families milling over conversation, cake and crayons. A regular, his favourite spot, is a high stool at the window, headphones on as he listens and reads. There are groups of girlfriends and lady friends. Sometimes I see men friends, which is heartening, Many need it, and too few find it. Today, there are two sick formers, the long hair that grammar schoolgirls seem to possess these days, sitting in conversation at a table strewn with things, including a lever arch file crammed with notes. I know the flow of their conversation, friendships, a sense of justice, falling in and out of love in a single day. Haven't we all been there? My own parallel memories were played out in not so different places. I think I was navigating my second main friend at school by the time I met you. Thrown into a first one class with one other girl from primary school, merging into a foursome with a couple of others in a similar paradox, and somehow swapping friends, then classes changed, and somehow we found ourselves in a new foursome that became our mainstay for the next couple of years. Clubbing together for birthdays, the other three would head into town to buy a £12 necklace from Elizabeth Jukud Argos and a Snoopy birthday card that was signed by none other than Dana, which was quality. We write each other letters in the evenings and give them to each other at school the next day. There's so much to say and so much that you need to know. The glory days before social media, I think at one point you kept yours in a lever arch file. By sick form, we'd slip out to Bookfinders Cafe on University Road. We shared shifts at the mortar board, though we called it the mortgage board because it was so expensive. It was also, I, I remember, where I made my first cappuccino, which in 1992 was a large mug of filter coffee with frothy milk poured on top, topped with a dessert spoon dollop of full cream and finished off with chocolate dusting. You could see the cream melt and form a layer of fat over the surface of the coffee. We go as au pairs to France. We flood bathrooms, we chop up and fill buckets with bizarre green vegetables. I buy two maps and convince myself that that will suffice as research for an A-level geography project. 
I'll pick and steal lavender from a field and the lady will shout at me as I make my getaway. The lavender still hangs in my study. We become prefects and spend lunchtimes on gate duty, keeping younger pupils in and keeping watch for boys that we knew at Queen's. We'd linger in the sick form centre after school, waiting it out with pals. They'll take the latest possible departure to Bangor that their train passes will allow. There's a photo of us at the formal of a different school. Me with my then boyfriend and you with your ex-boyfriend but still good mate's friend. How did we swing that one? We will take over my rented student flat in the week after Christmas and hang out. The pipes will freeze and we'll leave the super sarah on for a couple of hours as we head into town for the sales. No mental risk assessment for that or for anything that we did, come to think of it. We become flatmates and somehow navigate a year living with three boys who have a games console, bend a triangular men at work sign into shape to pour it over, uh, to put over our open fire to create a draw. And there's definite tension when we insist that leaving the pilot light on for the electric shower is driving up our bill. We were unspoken climate warriors before we knew it. I will receive a cheque from you at exactly the right moment in my gap year when I am trying to live by faith. At Christmas 99, we will get our first mobile phones. Later that year, I will sit on the platform of Philip tube, tube Station and sob into my phone with you at the other end, as I'm so perplexed by the indecision of jobs that I haven't even been offered. You listen and let me be heard. In Venice, we will part company after three weeks of interrailing. It all feels too much. We think that this is a crisis moment. But in hindsight, who hasn't got stressed out with a friend when travelling? And you'll leave a note for me at the youth hostel, at which I will arrive a few days later. Faith, love and philosophy. We like to think of ourselves on the edge of things. Questions and ever deep and meaningful conversations. At that point, I had no concept that someone might not be in my life. No one that mattered anyhow. But friendship breakups don't get the same airtime as relationship breakups. There isn't a rebound friendship. There doesn't seem to be a time in which people give you extra space because you're tender. And come to think about it, as friends we were together longer than any boy I thought I loved. But the hurt and the pain are real. It's hard to explain. It's a mystery. I'm grieving. But grieving someone who is still alive, I have come to know, is a different sort of grief. It was quiet. No one tried to sort us out. No one asked or dropped comments into conversation. And we were by then sufficiently after our postgrads and foraging into the early onset of careers. Groups had long dispersed. None of this was a matter of concern to any shared critical mass. In 12 years, I saw you once. You turned left from Grand Parade onto the Cassaray Road. Social media becomes our connector. As the space to catch up, on a break of 12 years, the drinks were secondary. There was no survey of the coffee menu, no glancing at treats, and shouldn't I, should I? But we never did that anyhow. I always had coffee, you were always tea, sometimes Diet Coke. I think you'd arrived first. Was there a brief hug? As we both sat down, there was a readiness, intimation. Faces and expressions don't change so much. A person beside us I sort of recognised. Usually I would inquire and make conversation with anyone, but not now. She sensed it too. We sit. The reflexes of conversation had not left us. Smiles and nods, the piecing together of clues, filling in of gaps. And then statements for which there are no clues. 
and the minutes and the moments for which no explanation is required. Time has been called on that. The threads of what has become the fabric of our lives, and it means so much because you're one of the people who held the start of that thread with me. You understand those deep set desires and convictions that were as strong then as now, but that have been championed, realized, and now embraced with a much needed, more critical and informed perspectives. We share our pain, struggles, we hope, we question, and we laugh out loud. Our lives we find are close in distance, but haven't touched. We have been passers-by, not overly distant neighbours, using the same shops and working for similar and not disconnected causes. There is no need for hindsight. This moment is good, and I am thankful for it. The early spring evening light has given way to darkness, but we have not noticed. Other customers leave one by one, and we aren't even aware. Then the lights dim, we keep talking. The kitchen is cleaned, money's counted. As if the staff understand, like a do not disturb sign, we are left, and a good hour after closing time, we are still sitting there. We could be the subject of an Edward Hopper painting. We slip into the street where the remainder of conversation takes place as I unlock my bike. It's cold, but we don't realise until it's penetrating our bones. As we part, there is that temporal look at each other in the eye, a realisation of this moment. Thank you. Stay. Oliver's Coffee Bar in Belmont in March 2014. Oh, Anna, how gorgeous was that? Thanks so much. Now, please don't leave it two years before you come back. Remember, if you have a story for 10 by 9 or you want to know more about what we do, check out our website, 10 by 9com There's plenty of info there, including all our dates for this year and a few other bits and pieces. We are always looking for stories, so if you see a theme that works for you, get in touch. OK, next up is Paul Brady. He had a wonderfully original take on the theme, and there might be the odd F-bomb in there, but used brilliantly, of course. Friend, F, from the moment I saw him on you, three days before my 10th birthday, with no knowledge of life or death on you, I knew it was too late. My dad came running up the path and laid him down on the ground and started doing mouth to mouth. I saw the thin, snake-like bruise pattern around his neck. We called it the Tarzan rope. A missing swing in the jungle gym had been replaced by a length of rope with a foot loop in the bottom. My best friend was acting idiot as usual, showing off and doing darn things because he was the smallest, but always, always the most fearless. He put the foot loop over his head to scare the younger kids, the way kids do. A stupid, foolish thing that nine-year-olds do every day all over the world to prank a sibling or a friend. This time it didn't work out. The loop tightened. The younger kids knew the joke had gone on for far too long. They ran for help. My poor dad. His own garden forever darkened. <clears throat> the jungle gym was dismantled and dumped. I still see him regularly, though. I tell him about school and girls, and work, and marriage, and having kids, and watching them doing the exact same stupid things we did. He listens, head cocked to the side, with his crazy white curls down over his shoulder, football under his arm, 
Still impatient as nine-year-olds are for me to hurry up and stop talking shit so that we can go and play before we're called for our dinner. Or, really, the Duchess said, as we pulled up in front of this, this small terraced house. It was a dead-end street. There were bricked-up houses, some of them barely standing. A shifty-looking dude was standing in the open doorway of the house opposite, wearing a vest and tracksuit bottoms. He just stared. Don't leave anything in the car, I said. I don't want to have to go over to that crack then and fight that pimp to get your fucking jacket back. <laughs> the Duchess subdued her laugh in, the, in case he saw her. She says, you're going to feel like an idiot carrying our ice machine into this shithole. As soon as you cross the doorway with it, the property's going to double in value. <laughs> My turn to subdue a laugh. Some of the girls were already there. They started to eye roll and laugh as soon as they saw us. We stepped over the giant hole in the hall floor and sat down our bags. How did this happen, I said. It sleeps 10 and the reviews were actually really good. Everybody laughed again as we walked into the living room. In the fireplace, instead of a fire, was a big bit of crunched up gold wrapping paper. I fake warmed my arse against it. <laughs> Toilet is in the kitchen, she said. Why am I not surprised, I said. They did leave us a welcome pack, though. They could barely contain themselves. On the windowsill, in the kitchen, was a dirty glass, which contained a handful of sachets stolen from local restaurants, slightly out of date red sauce, brown sauce, and mayonnaise. Ah, well, we're here now. Plug in the ice machine and we'll have a civilized drink. Happy 50th, kiddo. Wait, there is electric in this dump, isn't there? Aye. Is everybody here? I shouted from the front seat of the minibus. I'm not. Me neither. I swear to God, I'll turn this bus around and we'll go nowhere. Won't turn it around actually be going somewhere. I'll take it to your ma's house then. But there'll be a queue of traffic a mile long. And anyway, you're our brother. She's your ma too. Wait, does that make you our daddy? Don't call me your daddy. It sounds really creepy. That sounds creepy. You're the one driving 15 of us to our ma's house for sex. Can we all not just go to the concert instead? All right, who wants to go to the concert instead? There's a chorus of cheers. Okay then, we'll go to the concert. E. Every guy grab a girl for the low down, slow down spot for the lovers. The DJ was at his cheesiest worst. As the previous song faded out and the opening saxophone strains of George Miggle's Careless Whisper began, I joined all the rest of the awkward single teenagers as we hurriedly left the floor and melted back into the darkness. He wasn't moving. I always admired his absolute confidence in himself and his ability to be equally cheeky and charming all at the same time. You couldn't help but like him, and I was still learning at the feet of the master. Are you not staying up for a dance with me? He said to the poor girl who happened to be next to him. No way, she said, moving away far too slowly for someone who actually wanted to get away. He put his hand on his chest and face shock, reached up to the low disco ceiling and turned the spotlight onto himself. Maybe you didn't see me right. <laughs> she dissolved into a fit of giggles and turned back towards him. He opened his arms wide, grinned and beckoned her in. My paranoid, hormone-riddled teenage brain reminded me that, best friends or not, I could never let a girl I fancied meet him first. <laughs> I would only suffer ever by badly by comparison. 
Then I'd get to hear the five words that were said that the date was over before it was begun. She would casually ask, is your friend not coming? Then, <laughs> nobody's coming out until after the dinner, so away as all go. The makeshift street football team turned silently and walked away. Rosie closed the door and went back to making dinner. This was the 1970s. You just did what you were told by other people's parents. No back chat, or they'd be well within their rights to clip you around the ear for cheek. Anne goes straight to your parents and tell them what they had done and why they had done it. That just meant you were in danger of getting a second dig at home as well. In-house protests were pointless, so you just learned to accept that the match was going to be finished later on and getting out of our feet and playing out the back with your brothers was the better option. Anyway, we'd started building a brand new hut and this one was going to be the best one yet. We hadn't realised that the regime had got tighter. But since Jamesy had died in our garden, there had been a subtle change. He died in a neighbour's garden, literally feet away from his own door, where he should have been safe. A terrible accident that nobody could have foreseen. Just kids messing around with nobody supervising. It was the way of the world then. Rosie had changed from that day onwards. She would make sure her boys were rarely out of her sight again. And if the world, or the neighbours, or the friends, or the boys themselves thought it was weird, well, that was just tough. New phrases entered everyday language. Your brothers are your friends. Stay at the front where I can see you. I don't care who else is going. You're not. So away you go out the back and play with your brothers. And don't have me to tell you again. The baby turns 50 tomorrow. And as always, we'll all be together for it. The three of us playing out the back as always. The strange thing is that our own kids are all the same now. Their siblings are their best friends. Their cousins are close second. They just grew up with parents whose siblings were their best mates and accepted that as a way of life. D, do you think it's time we headed home? The Duchess was slurringly drunk. I think we should have headed home two bars ago. I was in a worse state than she was. She was always a much better drinker than me. We'll finish this one sure and get a taxi. It had been a great holiday. We'd hired a fancy villa with a fancy poodle. The kids were now old enough to bring their own other halves and had all gone out for the day to a water park or theme park or some such nonsense. And for the first time in decades, the Duchess and I were out of work chaperones with a whole day to ourselves in a tropical paradise. Let's just go out for the day and have a bit of a pub crawl like we used to back when we were friends. I laughed. I assume that was supposed to come out a wee bit less cutting and devastating. <laughs> she laughed too. You know what I mean? Back before all this abandonment happened and we just had ourselves to look after. We left a note for the kids. Gone day drinking. Don't know when we'll be back. Sort yourselves out for dinner. <laughs> then we jumped in a taxi and stopped at more or less the first little street restaurant that we came to in the old town. I don't remember an awful lot about what happened next. It's kind of a theme in my stories now. <laughs> but I do remember laughing until my sides were sore. She was right, as she invariably always is. We hadn't been like this in years. No conversational self-editing in front of the kids. No polite small talk in front of work friends or other parents. We'd almost forgotten that we weren't that couple who got married and then became friends in some soft-focused daytime TV melodrama. We were mates who went drinking and laughing, and somehow ended up married with a mortgage in charge of children. 
As we sat in the back of the taxi, whizzing through the warm Portugal night air, I took her hand and smiled. Then I looked up. Where the fuck did you get that hat from? <laughs> she was wearing an old woman's white, wide-brimmed mesh sun hat. <clears throat> it was balanced on top of a pile of her ginger hair. It was at least three heads too small. She was holding it on with her free hand. She tried to focus. It's mine, she said. I bought it earlier in the hat shop. She says, we weren't in a hat shop today. Or ever. Then how did I get my lovely new hat? She says, I'll tell you how, Raffles, you fucking stole it. That old couple who you befriended in that last bar, that's that woman's hat. No, it's not. She had a different hat. Hers was a big, white, wide brim thing, like a sun hat. Uh-huh, I said. Doesn't matter, we'll sort it out tomorrow. We're here now, look, there's the kids. She got out and waved her giant stolen hat at them from across the street. I could hear them laughing and cheering as I gave the taxi driver his money. Who owns that, they shouted. Me, she said indignantly. Could you not have stolen a nice one? They were all doubled over by the time I got out of the car. Hurry up, you two, they said. There's a guy in here playing Curtis Whisper on an out-of-tune saxophone. You'll love it. We kept you as a seat. Well, thanks so much. And what a fantastic interpretation of the theme. So good. Now, this is the bit you probably skipped 30 seconds forward, where I say 10 by 9 is always free and always will be. But we'd be really grateful if you'd help us keep it going. You know that bit. And then I add, you can donate via Patreon or PayPal. And there are links at the website, 10by9.com. Then I go on to say that we're all being squeezed right now. So remember, the best way to support us is to sit back and keep listening. On to our third story now, and to be honest, I always think twice about putting one of my own stories on here. It's not false modesty. It's just that the purpose of 10 by 9 is to provide a platform for others. But I'm making an exception this week. On Wednesday, I told the story behind a very recent event. I hoped you might want to hear it. And I've got a wee story for you on the theme, friend. And in 2011, as I said, Padraig Tuma and I started 10 by 9 we were on our, way, on our way to a wedding in the west of Ireland when I suggested we should start a storytelling evening. Nine people, up to ten minutes each, etc., etc. It would be free. We stopped for something to eat and thrashed it all out because storytelling was one of the few things we actually both liked. He was and is a poet. I don't really understand poetry. He was and is quite religious, and I couldn't really be bothered with the God stuff. I have the musical tastes of a 15-year-old girl. I love Beyonce, Katy Perry, and Abba. Absolutely. He likes dreary women with acoustic guitars, with long hair, who look like they knit their clothes from the body hair that, from, that grows on them. And they're always miserable. He called me at work one day and asked, was I still interested in this storytelling evening? And I said, mm, yeah, of course I am, yeah. And he said, good, because I've booked the black box for next month. I think I swore. But however it happened, 10 by 9 was born. It was our baby. And so here we are. We'd been together just over a year at that stage. When we met, I thought he might have been an undercover priest as he was working as a chaplain, which I thought was a priest-type job. He wasn't a priest. We met several times before we became an item. 
On Valentine's Day, he had impressed me with the gift of a cupcake and a glow-in-the-dark Virgin Mary, <laughs> which I still have by my bed. It was weird, but brilliant. A few evenings later, I told him, Padraig, would you ever shut up so I can kiss you? As he was droning on about some pictures on his wall. The next day, we met for coffee, and he said, I'm not looking for anyone else. Neither am I, I said. And history, at least our history, was made. Then he jumped on a train to go off to Coleraine for the weekend for a religious retreat. And nothing has changed. Despite having so little in common, we found enough, and he was my friend as well as the love of my life. That was 12 years ago. The struggling poet with the long curly hair, the jumper with the holes in the elbows and the ripped jeans is now a successful poet and podcaster, dividing his time between Ireland and New York where he's been living for the last eight months. He hangs out with writers and actors and the odd pop star, but is as down to earth and lovable as ever. Over our 12 years together, we had talked about getting married, and it's hard to believe that same-sex marriage was only legalized here in January 2020. But just as we could rarely agree on the music to play on long car journeys, we had very different ideas about marriage. Having been down that road before, I had rather fixed opinions. The best part of the pandemic, in my view, was the restriction on the number of guests that were allowed at a wedding. <laughs> Six. <laughs> that would suit me perfectly. In fact, two would be more than enough. He wanted the world and his wife. He wanted a fuss. I wanted peace and quiet and a stress-free day. I was happy with a five-minute town hall ceremony. He wanted church and readings, etc., etc. I was adamant, no reception, no cake, no first dance, no gifts. At least we were kind of agreed on most of those things. But since the issue of marriage wasn't exactly pressing, neither of us was pregnant, for goodness sake, it seemed best to just leave it. As I said repeatedly, as far as I was concerned, we were as married as anyone, and that this, for me, was till death us do part. In February this year, I was on a week-long visit to New York. Having Podrick there was great for me. I got to visit on the cheap and meet some lovely people. I got up one morning at a leisurely 9 a.m., as usual, wandered through to the living room where Podrick had been working since six. Again, he's a morning person, and I am most definitely not. He started chatting about marriage, and I repeated everything I'd said before, not in an unkind way. I just said, we are married in my eyes. We'll be together till death, unless you have something else to confess. And I didn't see the point and didn't think we should waste time disagreeing. But he was quietly persistent that morning, saying, it might make it easier for me to travel with him, make it easier to get visas, etc., even for tax purposes. I just drank my coffee and thought nothing about it, while he went in to get changed. And then it struck me. He seemed a little downhearted. Had I said something stupid? And I could feel my brain clicking into place. Did he just ask me to marry him? Someone in my head was screaming, yes, yes, he did. I got up and followed him and said, if you just ask me to marry you, the answer is an unqualified yes. And for someone who works with language like he does, I did think he could have been a lot clearer and just asked. And he did. The next morning, he had a poem for me, a proposal poem. And so, 
There we were, engaged in New York. Let's get married here when I come back in April, I said. He agreed. And let's not tell anyone. He agreed to that too. So I came back in April. We arranged to get our license at the town hall. And then a few days later, his friend, an Episcopalian minister, in a beautiful church on Fifth Avenue, the Church of Heavenly Rest, performed the service. I had made a few concessions. I did buy a special outfit. There were guests. He wrote the service. I wrote the vows. There were readings and some prayers. And like every movie cliche, someone brought balloons and we walked across Central Park. <laughs> some friends laid on dinner for us in their apartment. There were 12 guests. It was the most stress-free day imaginable and wonderful. My friend was now also my husband. Till death do us part. Now, do you want the poem? It's called, I don't believe in the future either. Given that it hasn't happened yet, I want to see if we can make it. A quarter of an hour is how long I've spent with you, enough to know I know enough. When it struck, the clock struck too. God, I love it when you moan, my tongue and you. I'm pretty sure that promises are for the present. So here, promises made new. Apologies are for the past. I'll give those too. I don't bring much, just books and cups with stories stored inside them, just maps of days we've made, every second, second, you. You're fond of saying the future is uncertain because it hasn't happened yet, so let's make a present, now and now and now, me and you. We've got love, my love, and time and room and lots of things to do. Hear me, I am asking you. I do. Do you? <laughs> and so I wrote at the bottom, yes, I do. <laughs> and that's it. That's the story of our, our wedding. If you're interested, there are photos of the big day on our social media feeds and also on our Patreon page. And I will post the poem as well. Thank you, Patrick. And that is it for this podcast. We really do love to hear from you. It makes my day. So please keep in touch on social media, all the usual places. Also email, which is story at 10by9.com or via our website, 10by9.com. Keep an eye out for upcoming events and themes. And please, if you can, tell as many people about the podcast as possible. It is the best way to get noticed. A review or a rating would also be helpful. Thanks to the lovely people at the Black Box and our wonderful audience and all our storytellers, but especially Hannah Grindle and Paul Brady. And thanks to Podrick for the poem. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. For now though, bye-bye.